3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 a.m. It is 7 o'clock in the morning. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, Priya. Morning. Uh, how are we all? No, that's a bad question. Not um, today. Not today. <laughs> not today, folks. Uh, but it is the 1st of September. So if I, uh, if I don't remind people about the 21st night of September later this month, then, um, I'm officially on notice. So, um, yeah, keep an eye out for me being very obnoxious and playing the song at some point <laughs> this month. Uh, we have, an unexpectedly huge show today. Uh, always have a massive show, always covering very important topics, but we've got five whole segments for you guys. Absolutely. So get ready to sit down and uh, just absorb a whole lot of important information. Um, starting off with uh, Inez, do you want to kick us off? Have you been curious about Concrete? Well, you will know more <laughs> by talking to Shannon Kilmartin March. He's a Vice Chancellor's Indigenous Pre-Doctoral Research Fellow. And he joins us to speak about how engineers at RMIT developed a method to dispose of PPE to make concrete stronger, providing an innovative way to reduce pandemic-generated waste. Incredible. Uh, and after that, we are joined by Melissa Fisher, who's an anti-poverty advocate on income support payments and also a member of the Anti-Poverty Center, of which I'm also a member, who joins us to discuss the Albanese government's inaction on poverty and what needs to change to improve the lives of people on social security in Australia. Folks, the Jobs and Skills Summit is happening today and tomorrow, and I really don't see the uh, actual tangible concerns of people who survive on social security payments prioritized. Do you want to read the next one? Yeah, and then, very importantly, we'll be listening to a compilation of Vox Pops from International Overdose Awareness Day, which was yesterday. (laughs) Sorry about that. uh, The 2022 event on the steps of Parliament House of Victoria, as well as sounds and speeches from a side demonstration by peers at the Australian Federal Police Headquarters in NAM CBD. Yes, and... uh, Really, uh, really excellent recording and totally, um, well, totally indebted to the excellent work of Kelly Whitworth, a gun producer at 3CR, who contacted me last night and was like, I thought you, the Thursday Breakfast crew, would want to platform this. And we absolutely do. So thank you, Kelly. Um, and just before that, we're going to play uh, a replay of the Do and Time show on 3CR, where Marissa interviews Kieran Pender, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Center, who gives listeners a breakdown of the anti-protest bill that passed Tasmania's upper house on the 25th of August in 2022. And he highlights the nationwide trend following the passing of similar bills, as we've spoken about before in Victoria and New South Wales in recent months, that erode democracy through attacks on protest rights. And finally, we'll be hearing from Zara Page, 
who is a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales and currently conducting research exploring the fairness of cognitive assessments for culturally and linguistically diverse Australians. Today, Zara joins us to speak about her recent work with the Centre for Healthy Brain Ageing, also known as CHIBA, and the CogScan analysis that aims to improve the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and dementia in cowed individuals. So a massive lineup as usual for you this week. We hope you stick around. And of course, if you're not able to catch the whole show, you can always tune back in by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash Thursday dash breakfast. And we usually have the podcast up within, I would say, about an hour after the show's done. Yeah, fair estimate. So stick with us. Thursday, September 8 is Are You OK Day? A reminder that every day is the day to check in with your friends, family and colleagues and ask, are you OK? Research has shown 4 out of 10 Australians hold back because they feel it's a conversation for an expert. But you've got what it takes to support your loved ones by simply listening and showing that you care. No qualifications needed. Find out how you can get involved at areyouok.org.au. A conversation could change a life. A 3CR supporter. And we're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast, and we're about to jump into the news headlines for this uh Thursday, the 1st of September in 2022. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 1st of September 2022. Just needed to reiterate that. (laughs) Where is my brain this morning? Right here. Um, So I just wanted to let listeners know that you should be advised the following headline contains distressing content regarding youth detention and self-harm. Families of children moved from Banksia Hill to maximum security adult prison in Western Australia continue to expose conditions in the prison and report that three children have self-harmed within the past week. Amnesty International Australia said the transfer of the children to the adult facility is a huge breach of human rights and this follows a ruling last week that the confinement of a child in the Banksy Hill Centre was unlawful. Family members say the incarcerated children are being treated like dogs and that they are also being regularly locked down in the maximum security prison. Community advocates say authorities should be engaging with First Nations people for solutions, but families of those incarcerated and advocates have had no response from WA and federal governments regarding their pleas for action. Also in news headlines this week, yesterday marked International Overdose Awareness Day and the coroner's court data released this week shows that accidental overdose deaths in Metro Melbourne hit a 10-year high in 2021. Coho says that the data is a harsh reminder that there are still many barriers that are preventing people from accessing drug services and treatment and Drug addiction and dependence remains one of the most highly stigmatised health conditions globally. They say there needs to be more done in harm reduction, including improving access to the supervising injecting room and increasing distribution of the overdose reversal drug naloxone. Advocates continue to point out the overemphasis on justice-based responses and policing in favour of health-based responses. And finally, in headlines for this week... Approximately one-third of Pakistan is currently submerged, with recent satellite images revealing the significant extent of damage caused by torrential rains and flooding. More than 1,100 people have been killed in what the United Nations has described as an unprecedented climate catastrophe. Experts say that outer regions 
such as South Punjab, Balochistan, and rural Sindh, are already resource-starved, exploited, and poverty-stricken, which are factors that exacerbate the flood effects. Pakistani Prime Minister Shehbaz Sharif said humanitarian aid needs to be multiplied rapidly with fears the flood devastation could lead to acute food shortages and add to skyrocketing inflation. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 1st of September, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And just want to add one more notice for listeners, and that is that the coronial inquest into the death of Kumanjai Walker begins next week on the 5th of September. So uh, for people that want to stay up to date and support the family and calls from the community for assistance and to amplify voices, you can head to at justice for Walker underscore on Instagram and you can find updates there. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is... A bad deal, but Muckley is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together. Worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Panoply, Panorama, Panpipe, Pansy, Aha, Pansexual, Knowing No Boundaries of Sex or Gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond... We'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. Let's 3CR is about community. 
and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. And now we are joined by Shannon Kilmartin-Lynch, who is a Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Pre-Doctoral Research Fellow. And he joins us today to speak on how engineers at RMIT develop a method to recycle PPE to make concrete stronger. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Shannon. No worries. Thanks for having me. No, of course. Uh, the RMIT team is uh, pretty amazing because <laughs> they have been able to get the first to investigate the feasibility of recycling at least three types of PPE from what I saw, isolation gowns and face masks and rubber gloves into concrete that could increase the strength of concrete by up to 22%. Could you tell us how the idea for this actually came about? Yeah, definitely. So it um, all really came about at the start of COVID when you know we sort of seen a lot of masks and gloves being littered in the streets and sort of just tossed around rubbish bins and things like that. And then we took the material and sort of did a few bits of testing on it just to see how, to get a rough idea of how it would react with the concrete. And then from there, it just sort of um, really got into gear and we were able to incorporate these into the concrete and then see the results. That's pretty amazing. Was there a reason why you were like, concrete is the material that I choose and it'll be the next love of my life for this study? <laughs> oh, no, like... Um, Throughout, like, my PhD, that's sort of my main focus, concrete, and finding different waste materials and sort of sustainable applications of these waste materials. So it was just by chance that it happened to be concrete. Oh, amazing. Well, it sounds like you've been, you know, passionate about this for a while, and as you've mentioned, there's been a huge amount of PPE waste due to COVID, um, and being able to recycle all of this is definitely super beneficial. Is there something about the study that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, definitely. Seeing the results and the increases from the PPE is very exciting in itself, but then also the various applications um, of concrete that we can have on industry as it can be incorporated into low-strength concrete, high-strength concrete. So there's all different various applications. So that's um, it's a pretty exciting sort of front, especially seeing plastic being used as a reinforcement. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. With the 22% number, was that just for like different strengths of concrete or where did the 22% come from? Uh, yeah, so the inc- the increase in that strength is compressive strength, which is one of the main mechanical properties that we test um, for concrete. So when, just how it reacts when it's under compression and under loading. Okay, great. Um, and I think I think some of us might be. I'm I'm definitely curious about this. Is the exact mechanics of how you shred cro- like PPE and how it actually makes concrete stronger. And I know you've done so much research on this, but would you mind maybe explaining in briefly simple terms how this actually happens? Uh, yeah, definitely. I'll give it a try. Um, so concrete's very weak in tensile strength traditionally. Um, and the PPE itself was very strong in tensile and it's very fibrous. So when the concrete's put under stress, little micro cracks develop throughout the concrete and then therefore the fibrous material of the PPE sort of bridges those cracks then to allow the strength development. Okay, great. Can um, can anything actually be a substitute for the PPE or is the PPE actually pretty 
special in this regard? Like, is there something special about that in particular? Uh, just sort of um, anything with like a high tensile strength that has the capability to bond with the cement um, within concrete can be utilised as sort of a reinforcement material. Um, there are different alternatives. PP is very good. There's also um, rubber that can be utilised from old car tyres. There's glass that can be utilised from old bottles and things like that. So there's all different various applications of waste that can be incorporated to sort of reduce the environmental impact on things that don't necessarily biodegrade very quickly. Yep, that's pretty amazing. I think also with PPE, um, that might be like contaminated. Do you have to decontaminate it or like what, do you take any extra measures in that regard? Um, so we were working majority with expired PPE that was going to end up in landfill. Right, okay. Um, uh, but there is further work to be done sort of with governing bodies like the EPA, healthcare systems and things like that, just to sort of find a safe approach to decontaminate this waste. So it's sort of not um, not a biohazard anymore and not um, risking infection to anybody who's handling it. Okay, great. And with the study that you've been conducting, I know it's in the initial early stages, but how long did it take to find these very promising early results? Um, so it's sort of been in the works for about two years now, I think. Uh, we started looking at face masks um, in late 2020, and then the isolation gowns have sort of just been wrapped up to tie it all together. Okay, great. Um, yeah, it sounds like, you know, it's been two very pivotal years and COVID is not over and not, definitely not going anywhere. So I think, yeah, it, it definitely provides really important, promising results. Uh, I also want to touch on something your G, uh, joint lead author said, which is Dr. Um, Rajiv Roychand, said there is a real potential for construction companies to play a role in transforming this wave, waste. Um, could you maybe elaborate on this point in particular and why construction companies were something that you felt was important to highlight? Yeah, definitely. So construction companies can definitely help um, sort of push this research along by utilising it in field trials and things like that. So we need to have a few field trials um, just to test it sort of in real-world applications because in the lab we can only test it in sort of cylinders, you know, very controlled samples and things like that. But if we can utilise construction companies to test it in real-world applications, then it's going to give it a sort of a boost and really push it into, um, really push the research forward and to be able to utilise. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, With the research that you're, like, upcoming with um what does i guess what does the next steps look like uh is it real world application is it partnering with construction what yeah i guess what does it look like what's the timeline uh yeah definitely so um a bit of both real world applications and partnering with construction companies uh we're currently working with a local company in melbourne called casafico on the very first field trials for this mm-hmm. um but we're also keen to partner with sort of healthcare sectors and other construction companies as well for other applications and also to um, really target the decontamination of these um, PPE wastes. Uh, we're really hoping that if we can push this along, it's sort of going to be something that we can see being rolled out within the next five to ten years. Yeah, that's that's incredible, being able to you know find a, a really important way to use expired PPE and knowing that, yeah, it can make something that's already very strong even stronger. <laughs> Um, I think also with the upcoming research, I know research can be lengthy and uh, sometimes difficult to 
carry forward. <laughs> um, but I guess, what do you anticipate any current like challenges that you are yeah anticipating and know how to overcome yet? <laughs> um, yeah, sort of the main challenge is utilizing um, PPE from hospital waste streams and things like that that are. Um, they usually get incinerated straight from hospital streams just to sort of eliminate the threat of any um, contamination. So that's one of the major challenges we're looking at because that's a huge supply of PPE that's getting incinerated and then um, the effect of that is obviously the incineration, greenhouse gases, ozone layer. Um, so that's one of the huge challenges that we're facing. We hope that we can um, sort of get under that by partnering with these systems and seeing if there's different ways they can decontaminate the PPE without affecting the mechanical properties of the actual material. Okay, that makes sense. And with the uh, concrete that is, like, cracking, um, is there what happens when concrete cracks? <laughs> um, do things fall apart? Uh, yeah, what happens then? Yeah, definitely. So um, when the concrete's tested, it's tested to a failure point. Yeah. And that's like the maximum strength that it can withhold before failure. So without the PPE in it, the, um, that's how we sort of compared and saw the overall results. We have control samples that have no PPE in it and then the samples with the PPE in it so we can see the results and how they compare to something without PPE. So without the PPE, the concrete's cracking a lot earlier right. and has a lot weaker strength. You could almost say that the PPE is... Uh being extra protective <laughs> for the second time go, which is pretty nice. <laughs> um, I guess also with the study, because I know everybody's excited about it, uh, where can we follow along? Is there anything else that you would like to highlight? Yeah, definitely. Look, there'll um, be further research papers that are sort of coming out on different applications and maybe even combining the materials and things like that. Um, that's all part of the research plan. And, you know, we can follow along through um, RMIT or... Um, on Google Scholar, on research profiles and things like that. And, yeah, so that should be really exciting in the next sort of two to three years and how this progresses. Amazing. Can't wait for the world to be even stronger with your help. <laughs> thank you. No worries. Have a good day. No worries. Thank you. And we were joined by Shannon Kilmartin-Lynch, who is a Vice-Chancellor's Indigenous Pre-Doctoral Research Fellow, and he joins us today to speak on the RMIT method of uh, using disposable PPE to make concrete stronger, which is very innovative. The Seoul Musmi Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Hi, my name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best 
uh, black and deadly music entertainers and performers around this country join me then from 11 12 Fridays community radio Thresia 855 on the AM dial And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.24 in the morning on the first of September. That's right. We are getting towards the end of the year. And uh, we are joined now by Melissa Fisher, who's an anti-poverty advocate on income support payments and is also a member of the Anti-Poverty Centre, which I'm a member of as well. And Melissa's joining us to discuss the Albanese government's inaction on poverty and what needs to change to improve the lives of people on Social Security in Australia. Now, listeners might be familiar with uh, a lot of the hype that's been uh, happening across the media and by the Albanese Labor government about the Jobs and Skills Summit, which is running today and tomorrow, Thursday the 1st and Friday the 2nd of September in Canberra. Um, and there's been, you know, a lot of quite ridiculous proposals about how we might uh, reduce the unemployment rate, which is already at a historic low, but really uh, very little substantive consideration of the of the lives and uh, the wants and needs of people who actually survive on Social Security payments. So good morning, Melissa. Thanks so much for joining us to unpack some of this. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, so I was hoping that we could maybe start off with hearing a bit about your own self-advocacy and why it's so important to amplify the voices of people who are actually directly affected by harmful Social Security policies in these conversations. So I actually started out as a carer for my mother for 22 years, um, from 12 to 34. Uh, once she passed away, I was put on job seeker, and I think it was at that point that I realised that nobody could survive on that rate. Um, like, even the carers pension, I was still in poverty, but job seeker was absolutely ridiculous. And I started speaking out about it because I just couldn't believe people had been left on a payment that was so inadequate. Um, and from there, I heard from thousands of other people in the same predicament I was. You know, we want, obviously, a chance. We want to be given enough resources that we can succeed. But instead, we're being left in poverty with no hope at all. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is, it's just, you know, the the overarching approach, um, and I would say a, a bipartisan approach, has been um, quite inconsiderate um, of the actual lived realities of people who are on Social Security payments um, and an assumption that, first of all, that everybody should be in work and can work, but secondly, that uh, it's a question of individual responsibility and not doing well enough and not trying hard enough if you are unable to get into work um, and ignoring some of these massive structural uh, factors as well. So um, 
In a Tuesday interview on ABC Radio National, Minister for Social Services Amanda Rishworth told Patricia Carvelas that government will not be proceeding with a raise to the rate of job seeker in the upcoming October government, which is obviously a big blow. Um, and it comes off the back of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese referring to Social Security recipients as a, quote, burden on the welfare system, unquote. So, how have these statements been received by people who actually do rely on inadequate social security payments to survive, and why are they so concerning? So they have not been received well at all, which I think there's a lot of anger. I think there's a lot of hopelessness right now. Um, basically, I think the we've heard this from this government, previous governments, that we're not good enough, we're burdened if we're not working, which doesn't take into account any of our circumstances. Uh, like, they're concerning because they're still pushing the same rhetoric that we're not good enough, that there's something wrong with us, that somehow poverty is a moral failing and it isn't. That, like, studies have actually shown that the longer people are in poverty, the harder it is to get out of it. And so governments have actually set us up now for failure. And and to hear them keep pushing that it's our fault is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, of course. And I mean, like, there's so much... Uh, like pejorative discussion about things like intergenerational welfare dependency and long-term welfare recipients when really the reality is that people are struggling to survive and are not in conditions where they're able to, to you know, thrive. And if they are able to work, they don't have access to work because of the way that poverty impacts upon their lives. Um, and I think... With that, uh, the Albanese Government's Jobs and Skills Summit is beginning in Canberra today and runs over today and tomorrow, and there are major industry players, unions, and community sector organizations that are set to focus on issues including barriers to employment. And Now, I have a feeling that barriers to employment are conceived quite differently between government and people who actually have lived expertise of being in poverty. So can you speak to what this discussion about barriers to employment means across these different spheres? So they're going to focus on basically, you know, the employer side where our problem is literally poverty is a barrier to employment. Uh, There's so many different issues and barriers to employment that will not be looked at. There's mental health. There's, you know, as I said, poverty. There's other things that are in people's way. Sometimes we cannot see them. Uh, it's easy to look at someone and think, oh, you're healthy, go to work. But we don't know their trauma. We don't know their past. We don't know what they've been through in life that's put them in that situation. So I think the government actually not consulting with people that are on job seeker and are in poverty is a huge mistake on their part. And I honestly think that the job summit will end up being a failure because they haven't consulted the groups that matter. Mm, yeah. And 
I mean, this is, you know, not even to mention the, the, the ongoing concerns about, you know, questions of, of mutual obligations, um, and, and the way that that is such a severely punitive and harmful approach to the delivery of social security, this idea of welfare conditionality where people, you know, have to, have to engage in these activities that, you know, might not be safe. I think of, you know, the, the death of Josh Park Fing. Um, I think of people, um, you know, there's recently been, uh, Reporting, I think, in The Guardian about uh, somebody who uh, suffered an injury during a work for the Dole program and is now having that money recouped. I was wondering if you wanted to yeah, comment on mutual obligations as well and and the way that uh, the barriers within the Social Security system that, um, you know, provide all of these extra challenges for people in poverty. So the mutual obligation system, to me, I've been with the services for six years, I've never received any help at all. I couldn't even get help to write a resume. So they're strictly put in place to make sure we're job searching. Uh, They're strictly put in place to punish us for being in poverty because I've spoken to thousands of people that have never received help. They've gotten their own jobs and then they'll be chased for details for that job. So mutual, uh, so the job providers can get their kickback, basically. So I think, you know, expecting people to do work for the adult uh, with no extra money for that work, it's slave labour and it's exploiting people. It's been shown that work for the adult does not lead to employment. In fact, that hinders it. So I don't understand. I think the whole system needs to change and I think we need to stop with the punitive and punishing job seekers and instead come from a care-based system where, you know, people's mental health or other barriers can be taken down slowly with help. This punishing people, it's just making it a lot harder for them to actually get employment. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, we've already seen some pretty ridiculous proposals from the business sector for this particular summit, including sending younger children to work. So reducing the uh, the age of employment to, to 13 across the board, for example, and also paying part of agricultural laborers wages in produce. Now, from where you stand, what changes do you want to see come out of this summit that will actually improve the lives of people on Social Security, noting that you mentioned this has to come from a framework of care and I would say dignity uh, as well? I think that's just it. We need to change the framework to care and dignity where people can actually get, you know, the help that they need on the ground level. I would raise job seeker for a start. Um, I think, as I said, poverty is a huge barrier to getting employment. So just by raising JobSeeker, we've literally gotten rid of a barrier for thousands of people. Um, the other thing I would do is I would suspend mutual obligations. Instead, I would make it voluntary and help those people that, you know, are looking for that type of work. There's a lot of unpaid work that goes on in the unemployed community that many people like to ignore. 
but it doesn't mean it's not happening. You know, there's people that are helping in their community by volunteering, um, which a lot of people can no longer afford to even volunteer on job speaker because, like, you know, there's transport costs and things like that. So I would definitely go for, for a care approach. Um, I, I, if I was the government right now, I'd be talking to unemployed people and I'd be talking to those in the disability unemployment as well just to get an idea of what they're actually going through and what their barriers are instead of just putting us all in the same box. Yeah, and I, I see that, you know, there's been... Uh, the Disability Royal Commission recently reporting, um, and this has obviously been widely known uh, for years, but that uh, less than 1% of rental properties in Australia are affordable to people on the DSP. So alongside removing people's barriers to, you know, to accessing these things, to raising the rate of job seeker payment, but also of unemployment payments across the board, there's really like a cultural shift as well that I think needs to happen, um, that needs to happen too. And I know you've advocated for, for things along these lines as well, where people, um, people who are on social security payments are not seen as, as full members of society, which is totally unfair. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we head towards wrapping up? No, I think that covers it all. I think it's what you said that we need to change people's ideas about the unemployed community. I think we need to show them that we're so much more than just unemployed. You know, there's a huge pool of people that have been left behind that we can literally advocate and, you know, do things, but instead we're not given the opportunity to use our talents. Um, for instance, I'm an artist, and yet when I brought that up with my job network, they didn't look at my art, they didn't look at anything to do with it, and instead they're just like, well, that's not going to happen. You've got to take whatever job you're offered, even if that's clearly toilet. And it's like, well, you know, I've got skills in other things, but they're being ignored. And it's the same with other job seekers. They've got certain skills, but instead of playing to them skills, they're being put in jobs that are unsuitable. Yeah. I mean, I also, just a side note, encourage people to check out Melissa's artwork. It's fantastic. And we'll definitely have a a link to, to that in our show notes. But there is this sort of assumption that people who are and when I say assumption this is you know both at the governmental level but sort of seeped into Australian you know mainstream conversations about unemployed people that um, that unemployed folks don't deserve to have leisure activities or creative pursuits and that that can't be a fundamental part of their lives and instead that they have to um, you know fit within uh, this impossible you know bind of fulfilling mutual obligations and, um, you know, being productive members of society in, in their framing uh, rather than recognizing all of the things that people already do to contribute and the ways that they're limited from contributing in other ways by virtue of being in poverty. Um, 
So just to wrap up, Melissa, I understand there's planning underway for a National Day of Action calling for an urgent government response to poverty in Australia, including through raising the rate of Social Security. Where can listeners find out more about this and support? So through the Anti-Poverty Centre, they will be helping me organise it. Um, I'm pretty new to organising, but I think with truth of the date, uh, which will be the 17th of October. Um, and that's actually the day for international uh, ending poverty. So it's kind of the perfect day. What we're asking for is workers, um, those in poverty, absolutely everyone to stand together and demand better and to eradicate poverty because we're a wealthy country. We can literally eradicate poverty, which was shown, you know, overnight under Morrison. That changes can happen very quickly. And we need that to happen again because right now with the cost of living, people are not coping. It's going to cost lives. And, you know, it's, it's time that we all stood together and said no more. Absolutely. And I really like the emphasis that waged and salaried workers uh, should be standing in solidarity with people who are unemployed or who are underemployed, who are on Social Security payments to say, um, you know, we push back against and resist this line that members of our communities are a, quote, burden, according to Albanese, and instead that we want to stand together and fight so that everybody has a decent quality of life. So thank you so much, Melissa, for taking the time to speak with me about this this morning. Thank you, Priya. All right. And that was Melissa Fisher, who's an anti-poverty advocate on income support payments and joined us to discuss the Albanese government's inaction on poverty and what needs to change to improve the lives of people on Social Security in Australia. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 8.55 a.m. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. This month, Melbourne's beloved art house Cinema Nova turns 30 and is inviting you to celebrate. Revisit Cinema Nova favourites with a curated programme of popular features that Melbourne movie lovers took to their hearts, including Parasite, Call Me By Your Name, Ligon Street, Si Parla Italiano and more. Tickets on sale now. Cinema Nova, Melbourne's favourite independent cinema since 1992. A 3CR supporter.
And now we are going to a replay uh, from Doing Time, where Marissa interviews Kieran Pender, a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Center, who gives listeners a breakdown of the anti-protest bill that passed Tasmania's upper house on the 25th of August. And he highlights a nationwide trend following the passing of similar bills in Victoria and New South Wales in the recent months. It's basically a blow for democracy as Tasmania's anti-protest bills passes upper house. The Rockcliffe government's alarming new anti-protest law has passed the upper house in a move that will weaken Tasmania's democracy and erode the right to protest. The Police Offences Amendment Workplace Protection Bill 2022 was passed with a number of amendments, including the removal of proposed increases to penalties for street obstruction. Leading Tasmanian and national civil society organisations have criticised the passing of the bill, which significantly increases some penalties and creates new offences for non-violent protest-related activity. Let's speak to Karen, and Karen will unpack this for us. Hello, Karen. Welcome to the program. Hi. How are you doing? Now, you are a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, is that right? That's me. It's lovely to have you. Now, Karen, I've been interviewing quite a lot on this topic, and I believe that Victoria has already passed the same bill. Is that right? Uh, Victoria has passed a similar bill, similar. A, a narrower bill, but you're right in pointing out that this is a really alarming nationwide trend. We're seeing an attack on democracy, an attack on protest rights that's really started in Tasmania, it's moved to uh, Victoria, moved to New South Wales, uh, really alarming and erodes our rights and freedoms. Yeah, there's an excellent media release that's been written by the Human Rights Law Centre, but can you just tell us a bit about the bill and, and, and talk to us about the background and what's happened? Sure. This is a bill that makes it harder to protest. It's as simple as that. Um, there are a number of last-minute amendments. Um, police uh, improved the bill, but it's still a bill that's unnecessary. It's proportionate and it's lacking in safeguards and oversight. The, the, the freedom to protest is that the democracy, and this is a bill that increases penalties for people who, not in the course of protest, cause disruption uh, and otherwise impede uh, while going about. Uh, this bill makes it harder to protest in Tasmania, and it's really disappointing that it's been passed by the upper house. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many issues at play here. I mean, as a as a forest blockader, when I was um, Forest blockading in East Kippsland, you know, I, at that time I had the right to protest, didn't I? And I could go in there and, and yes, if people were arrested, you know, they would go to court. But this is actually a completely different issue, isn't it? Can you explain that and compare that to how it was before? This law increases the penalties and increases the scope of offences that um, might apply to people engaging in protest activity. Uh, it's similar, as I said, to laws that we've seen pass in New South Wales and in Victoria in recent months. Uh, what is particularly alarming is that Australia lacks the fundamental rights and freedoms enshrined in our law. Uh, uh, that means that laws like this can become law and then can limit our right, our freedom to protest. We don't have robust uh, uh, constitutional rights and freedoms. We don't have express protection, speech for freedom of expression, freedom of assembly. 
in Tasmania and in New South Wales, there's no charter or bill of, of rights. And that means that bad laws like this can pass and then they can withstand legal scrutiny. Now, the last time the Tasmanian government passed a law like this, it was struck down by the High Court using the implied constitutional freedom of political communication, the, the frail uh, but important constitutional freedom. Uh, it may well be that this law goes back to the High Court, um, but in the interim, it will chill protest activity in Tasmania, and that's deeply concerning. It is indeed, particularly because the Do and Time show doesn't just look at um, the lived experience of prison. It also acts as a watchdog for expanding police powers or ongoing um, laws such as these or bills. And also most concerning, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that these anti-protest laws have been put in to to encourage logging companies, for example, and not just logging companies, but um, you know, to to encourage the work the the companies to to wreck the environment. I think what's particularly concerning about this law and the law in New South Wales and in Victoria is that they're all very clearly targeted at a certain group of protesters being climate and environment protesters. In the case of the Tasmanian law, very clearly an attack on the Bob Brown Foundation, which has led a number of protests against forestry and mining in Tasmania. Um, We see particularly and extremely alarmingly uh, provisions in the New South Wales and now the Tasmanian law that carve out industrial protests so people who are protesting about work conditions, unions, etc., are protected, but those protesting about other things are not. Um, as unions in South Wales, in New South Wales, rightly recognise, that is deeply alarming. The state shouldn't be picking and choosing what views are allowed to protest and what views aren't. So, although there were some last-minute amendments to this Tasmanian bill uh, that improved it, it still is draconian and anti-democratic and should never have been come, become law. And it's alarming particularly because of this viewpoint discrimination, this attack on particular views and particularly anti-forestry, climate and environment protests. So you're, basically some, some protesters can... It, it's better for them, is it? Like they, they can't get those, those sentences or fines? So, so in both the New South Wales and the Tasmanian law, there are carve-outs for industrial relations protests, so union protests, workplace protests. Hmm. That's alarming, although, of course, that's better than nothing, but we shouldn't have the government picking and choosing the Hmm. views and the viewpoints that are allowed to be heard. And that's why even, for example, Union New South Wales in New South Wales recognised that that was not a a, a good approach and they criticised the law just as stridently as us and other groups have. Absolutely. So under the new laws, a community member who obstructs access to a workplace as part of a protest could face 12 months in prison? Uh, and That's one of a, a number of extremely alarming provisions in this new law that will make it harder to protest and will leave protesters exposed to greater criminal liability. But I think even beyond the strict provisions of the law, this law will have a chilling effect. Protesters will be less willing and less able protest, particularly to protest simultaneously at short notice in response to incidents. And so in that way, it weakens our democracy and undermines our freedom to protest. It's really awful. I, I invited you on, Karen, and, you know, really as an expansion to, to talk about 
this in more detail because I've I've spoken to a couple of other people um like about the Victorian laws, but it sounds to me like Australia is going back to the Jogabioki Peterson um, times in Queensland. I think this is an alarming nationwide trend. As I said, just in recent months, we've seen Victoria, New South Wales and Tasmania uh, in recent years. Queensland has cracked down on protesters. We've had other anti-protest laws in Tasmania um, and in other jurisdictions. I think what's alarming is that these anti-protest laws come at such a critical moment. You know, we're at a, a, a such an important national moment where people being able to speak up and protest their causes is even more important than ever. And if we think through history, some of the, the things that have made Australia the great country it is today, uh, even just in Tasmania, the protection of beautiful wilderness areas, the protection of world heritage areas, and progress on LGBTQI rights, uh, for example, protests on, on First Nations rights, have all been achieved through protests. So when we silence protesters, what change are we inhibiting that's why these laws are so alarming, because they will limit the ability of Australians to exercise their fundamental democratic freedoms. Interestingly, too, Karen, I was just having, and I'll probably interview her separately at some stage, but I, there's an interesting quote here from Joe Flanagan, the CEO of the Women's Health Tasmania, and who, who was involved in the media release. Um, put out by the Human Rights Law Centre, and she talks about women protesting against sexual and family violence, um, for example, will be at risk because of the passing of this bill. Can you talk a little bit about that? I think the point is that all viewpoints are impacted by this bill. Now, it is clearly targeted at certain viewpoints. It's clearly targeted at anti-forestry, anti-mining protesters. Now, that is extremely problematic. As I said, it's extremely problematic that the government is picking and choosing. But the point is, it affects all viewpoints, except for industrial relations, who, as I said, have a special carve-out. So any protest is going to be impacted by this. And as you said, there are a range of, of, of particular viewpoints that in recent years have needed to use protest. And we think to the March for Justice last year in relation to sexual um, alleged sexual misconduct in Parliament. We think to um, the Black Lives Matter protest in relation to... Uh, uh, treatment of um, First Nations Australians in custody and so on, uh, areas where protest has been critically important in driving change and now that this law will serve as an, implement, an impediment to that protest. It's really crazy. Like I, I can just see that genocide and racism and criminalising of um, vulnerable communities such as First Nations people and migrants will will further be even worse. Uh, it's really concerning, and that's why the Human Rights Law Centre, among others, is calling on the Tasmanian government to repeal this law as soon as possible. But it's not working, though, is it? I mean, because Victoria has already passed it, hasn't it? And New South Wales. Yep. What can uh, we do? As I said, this is an alarming trend. Uh, so these laws may in the future be challenged. There are constitutional concerns with all of them. But what we need is a stronger human rights framework in Australia at a federal and state level, and we need government that protect rather than undermine the freedom to protest. Clearly, um, even though Victoria has a Charter of Human Rights, it's, it's, not, it's not in evidence at the moment. But we, I know we're talking about Tasmania at the moment, but, and I'm happy to talk about Tasmania, but there just seems to be a lot of far-reaching influences that are happening all over Australia. And isn't this a great quote from Bob Brown, Karen, about you know, how he talks about the 
you know, people will not be deterred from peacefully protecting Tasmania's seas, forests and wildlife? Uh, I think uh, Bob Brown's quote underscores the importance of protest. We've seen you know, some of the most beautiful parts of Tasmania today that are now internationally renowned tourism attractions uh, have been saved from uh, damming, from forestry, from mining, thanks to protest action. And so many of the things that make Australia great today have come about, so many of the social changes, voting rights, working rights, um, superannuation, maximum hours and so on, have come about because of protest. So when we undermine the right to protest, we undermine the ability to improve Australia. Absolutely, Karen. And, you know, just very briefly, just to reiterate that point, I was actually involved in a, in a campaign for, to, to save the forest in East Gippsland and Bob Brown was also involved and all of us got arrested. This was many years ago. And then we went to court and, and proved that logging in that particular area was illegal. So if there's no protest, that's a real blow to democracy because then there'll, there'll, there'll be all these secrets and, and backdoor deals that will never be exposed. Exactly, and that's why protest is so important. It's equal opportunity, political action. Anyone can take to the streets and express their views and can demand to be heard, and that's why we silence the protest at our peril. You know, it's important not to bow down to, to corporate thuggery, as Bob Brown says, and criminalising effective peaceful protest while legalising seal shooting, owl destruction and parrot extinction, extinction, sorry. I mean, I'm not just advocating for the forest. That's, I mean, that is a big part of the interview, but I also feel um, that it's really important, isn't it, to, to have all protesters protected. Uh, as I said, this is about protecting all viewpoints. What's alarming about this change is that they um, single out particular views. It's alarming when the governments are trying to regulate the canon who can't speak up fundamentally um, antithetical to our democracy and undermines our rights and freedoms and that's why these laws need to um, be repealed as soon as possible. And finally Karen, before we finish I just saw a quote here where it says the legislation as it stands still sees a peaceful protester holding a placard fined $8,650 or given one year in prison What's with that? Yeah, there are certain extremely alarming, yeah. overbroad and vague dimensions of this bill. One of the problems is we don't know how it will be applied in practice, and that gives police sweeping powers, which they can use at their discretion. Uh, and that's one of the many reasons this is a bad bill that shouldn't have become law, and now it's on the track to becoming law. It should be repealed. Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the program. Do you have any final comments before we finish? Uh, thanks. It's a pleasure, and I'm glad the attention you give to these issues. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. And that was Karen Pender, Senior Lawyer from the Human Rights Law Centre, speaking about some very, very alarming protest, anti-protest um, laws that have just passed the upper house in Tasmania. And as I said before, it, it really is the most appalling, appalling thing that, that's happened here. And it's, it's important to keep fighting and make sure that, that these things are, are repealed.
And that was Marissa from the Doing Time show on 3CR interviewing Kieran Pender, senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Center, who gave listeners a breakdown of the anti-protest bill that passed Tasmania's upper house on the 25th of August 2022. And Kieran highlighted the, nation, the nationwide trend, sorry, following the passing of similar bills in Victoria and New South Wales in recent months that erode democracy through attacks on human rights, uh, sorry, on protest rights. Um, and you can catch Doin' Time on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m. on 3CR 855 a.m. Now we're going to go straight into another segment and uh, content warning for drug use, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And um, there was some strong language in this segment that's been edited out. Uh, but we're going to catch a compilation of Vox Pops from International Overdose Awareness Day, August 31st. So this was yesterday. And this was held on the steps of Parliament House, Victoria. And we're also going to hear some sounds and speeches from a side demonstration by peers at the Australian Federal Police Headquarters in NARM CBD, demanding the safe release of confiscated heroin to be incorporated and used in safe supply programs. So huge credit to Harm Reduction Victoria, who organized this rally, and also to Kelly Whitworth from 3CR for organizing, recording and editing these Vox Pops, and also to Karina, who helped us out with some of the editing as well. So let's Let's jump into that. I'm Brittany. I, um, I work as a health promotion officer for Harm Reduction Victoria. I'm a um, living experience drug using here. Um, and I'm here today because I wanna I wanna be part of the movement that makes drug use safer for people and I think that the most unsafe thing for people at the moment is um, the punitive drug laws. Um, I'm Adrian Faruja. I'm an um, alcohol and other drug researcher from the Australian, Centre, Australian Research Centre in Sex, Health and Society at La Trobe University. And um, I've come down because uh, International Overdose Awareness Day is just a really significant uh, day of remembrance for uh, the lives, you know, lives lost by overdose, which are often forgotten and not um, effectively memorialised in public discourse. Um, so the day is a really important day for remembrance of the, you know, the grief and the tragedy of those lives lost, but also to point to the hard work and activism of uh, people who consume drugs and their friends and family trying to um, work hard to reduce these overdose deaths within really difficult contexts defined by prohibition, marginalisation and other things that uh, exacerbate the issue. I'm Baden Hicks. Um, yeah, I have a history of using drugs and um, also I'm an AOD worker, peer support worker. And yeah, I've just sort of experienced the stigma over the years of criminalisation and um, all I can see criminalisation is doing is costing people lives, lining the pockets of uh, police, um, corrections workers with money and also giving some politicians votes. <laughs> if we end criminalisation, get decriminalisation, what I believe we really need is um, legalisation, sex supply and harm reduction education. It will save lives and also save the, the taxpayers a lot of money. Well, for every every seven dollars that is put into the criminal system, if we could put a dollar into rehabilitation or harm reduction education and uh, save a lot more lives, it will save save the taxpayers. 
seven dollars for every dollar. Do you think things are getting better in this area over the years? I think some people, uh, yeah, they're, they're gaining a little bit, bit more awareness, but I think sort of the stigma that comes from criminalisation and also mainstream media is causing a lot of damage. Well, just the fear-mongering to get right, um, like when it comes to mainstream media, the fear-mongering to get right, and, and also criminalisation making making people feel shame about using drugs, treating them as a criminal. When drug use, uh, like it's, it's only problematic for 11% of people and for those percent of pe- percentage of people, it's not the drugs that are the issue, it's the problems behind the drug use that cause it to be problematic. Mental health and trauma mainly. Um, it could be sort of like also situational, like homelessness or living in domestic violence. Well, stigma was a barrier for me to getting treatment. I felt shame about opening up about um, my problematic drug use in the past when it was problematic. Um, and also, I was worried about the legal ramifications. I mean, as well, like... One of the, the, a huge thing that has affected me with, um, with criminalisation is I lost um, the rights to access my daughter like in the family court and that was six years ago. I haven't had any rights to be able to see her since and in family court the judge labelled me as a drug user so I'm not worthy of being a parent and I let like I think I was a pretty good parent. Um, my name's Kit. I'm a peer worker with CoHelp, and I'm here because it's important for me to remember and memorialise the people I know who died this year, and also because I really strongly believe in harm reduction and the importance of decriminalisation. Um, yeah. What would it mean to have things decriminalised? It would mean an approach towards drug use that doesn't bring a stigma, that doesn't bring shame and means that people don't have to take the risks and have the negative effects associated with substance use that currently they do. Those effects are mostly from the fact that it's criminalised, not from the substances themselves and from the fact that people don't have access to safe safe places to use, safe ways to use, um, safe amounts to use, safe substances. All of those risks are because of the fact that substances are criminalised and therefore it makes it, that's where all of the unsafety comes from, is from that criminalisation and from that need to be secret and that need to uh, hide your use. Nearly all of us use substances and it's not fair that some of them are criminalised and some of them aren't. That nearly all of us take substances to change how we experience life and to make us our life experience better, be that caffeine or nicotine or heroin. And it's not... It is arbitrary and unfair for some of them to be criminalised and some of us to be criminalised because we're choosing to use substances. Uh, My name is SJ Finn and I'm the founder of International Overdose Awareness Day. Um, When did that start for you? uh, 2001, so a long time ago. And we had high deaths in 99 and 2000, so um, we were talking about the same thing back then.
and uh, yes, we still haven't um, arrested the problem, you know, and we certainly aren't going to arrest our way out of it by uh, giving money to the police when we need it for harm reduction services. And uh, yes, it's a vital day for everybody who's lost someone or been touched by overdose, uh, and we'll keep fighting until a lot of things change. Yes, I, I mean, it's easy uh, for me because I came across it as a young social worker working as a family therapist and I met uh, mothers actually uh, who came to see me for counselling in rural Victoria because they had lost a child. Uh, so yes, we um, made our way through that through very different, difficult circumstances for them because of the stigma attached to the death of their child. And then I went to work at the uh, needle and syringe program at the Selvos in St Kilda and I met drug um, users who'd lost 17 friends and uh, hadn't really felt that they could mourn properly for their friends and loved ones um, because of the stigma attached to the death. So, uh, yes, I was very uh, struck by the fact that we need a day, a spot in the calendar to acknowledge these deaths, to talk about why they've occurred, to talk about what we can do to bring the rate of death down. Hi, I'm Kepa, and we're here at the... Australian Federal Police as part of a continuation of today's rally for International Day to prevent overdoses and we're at the Federal Police because we're demanding that they release the uh, close to a thousand kilograms of heroin that they have seized in the last uh, year or two and we want this heroin to be used productively for programs, for heroin programs uh, instead of being you know, destroyed or whatever they are going to do with it. The, uh, the idea of a heroin program is nothing new and you know, it has at times in the past seemed like something that could happen but due to conservative political powers that be and perhaps uh, more, more sinister sort of uh, alliance of you know, people within the prison industrial complex and so on uh, who, who uh, don't want to see heroin decriminalised or, or legalised, this, uh, the idea of a heroin program just has not progressed. But it's time now for it to happen and we're here today to get the, this, this, um, this uh, agenda, the agenda of making a heroin program uh, happen. We're going to keep starting it here today uh, at the Federal Police Building. It's really incredible turnout here today. <laughs> Start off the drug user liberation revolution movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The junkie militia is here today to tell the Australian Federal Police who have confiscated in the last 18 months 750 kilograms of high 
high-quality heroin. High-grade quality heroin. Thieves. Thieves, exactly. Meanwhile, so-called Victoria. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's a raging opioid epidemic in so-called Victoria, which could easily be curbed through the provision of a safe supply drug program. So, Australian Federal Police, we are politely requesting that you return the 750 kilograms of heroin that you have seized in the last 18 months and upcycle it into the community to be used in a safe supply program. I want to acknowledge that um, the war on drugs has always been part of a white supremacist plan. It's always been connected to white supremacy. It's always been a racist thing. You know, marijuana, cannabis wasn't seen as an issue until it was associated with Mexican migrant workers. Opiates weren't seen as an issue until it was used to demonize Asian people, Chinese people, you know, and the stigma that this war on drugs is causing, the death that this war on drugs is causing, the torture, you know, talking about like how Meg was talking about down at the other alley about Veronica Nelson, you know, they knew that she was being in torturous pain. She was calling out for help. And why didn't they help her? Because of the double whammy of the stigma of being an Aboriginal woman in prison and being a drug user incarcerated as well, you know? And the way that people who use drugs are treated, you know, most of society uses drugs at some point, you know? It's, and some drugs that are much more dangerous than opioids and opiates, such as... Her- uh, not heroin, what's it called? The other one. Alcohol. Alcohol. <laughs> Such as tobacco that is completely, you know, taken up as part of so-called Australia's cultural identity that is so normalised, you know? Like, it's ridiculous and it's obvious, you know, that the needless distinction between so-called hard drugs and so-called soft drugs, you can't make that distinction, you know, when you look at the effects on people, look at the effects on communities, you know, talking about heroin, it ha- when you take away the socioeconomic harms caused by it being black market, it is one of the safest drugs, you know, and it is much safer than alcohol, which apparently is totally fine for people, you know, to be engaging in. And it's only drugs that are associated with lower socioeconomic status people, such as meth, such as heroin, that are demonised the most, that are stigmatised the most. And, you know, that impacts every single aspect of drug users' lives. We are not looked at as humans. We're not looked at as people. You know, when we come into contact with other institutions, be that courts, be that cops, be that healthcare places, you know. When I first had really accident and tore my hip capsule first day I turned up to go to hospital I was just you know I was on heroin right then but they didn't associate that with me because I was in my little middle class social worker outfit the next time I just turned back up and tried to get my MRI I was laughed at I was called a drug seeker I was told I was surgery seeking 
I was told like that I was putting on a limp <laughs> and I ended up in a wheelchair for six months because of those because they looked at me differently and didn't show me the proper health care and the proper rights that I deserved. And you know, this is happening to so many people and so many worse situations. People are dying and it's bullshit. Stigma kills and you know, this drug war has killed so many people. You know, when is it going to end? Yeah. And you just heard a compilation of Vox Pops from International Overdose Awareness Day, which was yesterday, the 31st of August. And this was an event uh, run by Harm Reduction Victoria at the Steps of Parliament House of Victoria, as well as sounds and speeches from a side demonstration uh, by peers at the Australian Federal Police Headquarters in NARM CBD, demanding the safe release of confiscated heroin to be incorporated and used in safe supply programs. And credit to Kelly Whitworth from 3CR for recording those Vox Pops. And next up, we will be speaking to Zara Page, who is a candidate at the University of New South Wales. After graduating with first-class honours and a major in neuroscience, she is currently conducting research exploring the fairness of cognitive assessments for culturally and linguistically diverse, a.k.a. cowed, Australians. Adults from cowed backgrounds make up about 30% of the Australian population, aged 65 years and above, yet remain underrepresented in dementia research. Today, Zara joins us to speak about her recent work with the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging, also known as CHIBA, and the CogScan analysis that aims to improve the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and dementia in cowed individuals. Good morning, Zara. How are you? Good morning, Leila. I'm great, thanks. Welcome. So I was wondering if you could start by telling me a bit more about Chiba and what led you into this area of research. Of course. So Chiba is a multidisciplinary research centre based at the University of New South Wales. And this basically means that we have a team of researchers that work in areas from genetics all the way through to health ageing policy, collaborating on projects with the ultimate vision to achieve healthier brain ageing and better clinical care of age-related brain diseases, such as dementia, for all Australians. And as a part of my undergraduate degree, I'd had some experience with research before, but this was definitely more (laughs) lab code and microscope-based work. But I was lucky enough to join Chiba in my final year as a part of the CogScan study, and this was working face-to-face with some amazing volunteers from our community. And I absolutely loved it. I found it incredibly fulfilling meeting volunteers and understanding all of the hard work that goes into the coordination of collecting data about cognition and memory from a diverse range of people. Mm-hmm. Since then, I've had the opportunity to undertake my PhD here at Chiba, looking specifically at how we can work towards more culturally appropriate cognitive assessments. And this is my way to help older adults from called backgrounds, just like my grandparents, to access better healthcare services. I can absolutely understand why you were drawn to the human element of that research. So now getting into the nitty-gritty of what Mm -hmm. we're really going to be talking about today, under representation or exclusion of certain groups from medical research has long had a serious impact on access to healthcare. 
Mm-hmm. In so-called Australia, factors such as language, age, cultural, ethnic or religious background and gender can restrict can restrict a person's access to both diagnosis and treatment within national healthcare systems. With dementia currently running as the second leading cause of death in so-called Australia, it's crucial that healthcare is appropriately designed for the diversity of our population. Could you speak to why it's so important that researchers such as yourself consider the gaps in cognitive assessment strategies? Definitely, Leila. So we we know that from the 2016 census, like you said, around 30% of the Australian population aged 65 years and above are from these diverse backgrounds. And this is something we actually expect to see rapidly grow in the upcoming census data and well into the future. We also know that one in six older adults speak a language other than English at home and that over 300 languages, including Indigenous languages, are spoken in Australia. However, the cognitive assessments that are currently available are largely developed in white, English-speaking Western countries. So there's a real gap there. Um, the gap that we see is when we're working with the older adults from called communities who may not speak English as their first language, or who might not be as familiar or less familiar with some of the items in certain tests just because of their cultural background, these tests that we have might not be the most suitable for detecting the changes in thinking and memory that we really need to. So that's why it's absolutely critical that we investigate how we can improve the tests that we do have and the diagnostic strategies that we use to take this diversity into consideration. And make sure that we're actually measuring what we really need them to measure, not just how well someone speaks English. Mm. And it's important as well from that that we actually include people from all backgrounds in dementia research from the very start. We need to make sure that the research we're carrying out that will develop these healthcare systems, these tools, is actually representative of the diversity in our community that will be accessing the diagnostic services, the treatment, the support network. It's incredibly important and I think, yeah, it's a really good reminder to hear those stats that we're really not talking about a minority here. Like this is 30% of our population and probably more. Um, It's incredibly important to recognise those gaps. Uh, So I wanted to ask now, what exactly does the the CogScan study that you're currently participating Mm -hmm. with, what does it actually aim to address by involving CALD volunteers in its research? And what might a potential volunteer expect when it comes to participation? Of course. So our study, COGSCAN, which is here at the Centre of Healthy Brain Aging, is looking at how to get more accurate and timely measures of cognitive change in older adults. So the reason we're focusing on boosting this representation and participation of called volunteers is to help us better understand how their language and cultural backgrounds can influence these cognitive assessments. We want to really get down and identify which of these assessments are the most suitable for older adults being assessed for dementia and mild cognitive impairment to help clinicians and to guide them to decide which of these tests they should use and how to better interpret test results in these everyday settings like at your GP. So the study we're focusing on at the moment is an online, completely anonymous survey that can be completed anywhere in Australia. 
Volunteers participate from home and they can complete the survey on their phones, computers, iPads. Um, and we ask questions about the languages that they speak, when they learn them, who they speak them with, and when they use them. Uh, but don't worry, there aren't any cognitive tests uh, in this survey. Well, I'm definitely um, interested in, get, in encouraging my nono, shout out to nono over in WA, um, involved because I think he can speak about six different languages and I think, yeah, he would probably value just knowing that that's an important um, thing about who he is. Um, Definitely. So we will put the show, well, in the show notes, we'll put links to where you can actually participate in that study. Um, and finally, Zara, I wanted to ask, what are your hopes and dreams for the outcome of this project? And what's something that you're kind of excited for in future? Yeah, in, in a really practical sense, the results from the survey in parallel with those from another study where we've had people come into the lab and try out some of these assessments that we might use for diagnosis will help us to understand which of these language and cultural factors are the ones affecting performance on the assessments we have. But the more we understand generally about the relationship between language and cultural culture and cognitive performance, we can take that into consideration and really develop these suitable and accurate tools. And Layla, that's why we're really keen for as many people from all language and cultural backgrounds, such as, you know, your nono in um, Western Australia who speak lots of different languages or maybe who have different levels of proficiency in different languages to participate. Um, the goal is to capture the multicultural makeup of Australia. And I'm personally really excited to see how our study and my PhD project can contribute to not only clinician um, practices now, but well into future research and really the approaches of how we conduct and design a research study that actually encourage the inclusion of older adults from core backgrounds from the very start and build capacity in our healthcare services to benefit all of our community. Yeah, this is really, really important work that you're doing and yeah, it's just, it's nice to think about the diversity of our population as something that is enriching and should be celebrated as people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Um, in my research, I came across something talking about um, focusing on what uh, people in these communities can do and how often it's societal barriers that, um, you know, cause the majority of the disability. Um, so, yeah, I think it's this is really important research. And thank you so much for speaking to us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And that was an interview with Zara Page, who's a PhD candidate at the University of New South Wales um, and who spoke with Leela just now about research, uh, about her research into the fairness of cognitive assessments for culturally and linguistically diverse Australians and her recent work with the Centre for Healthy Brain Aging or CHIBA and CogScan analysis that aims to improve diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment and dementia in culturally and linguistically diverse individuals. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and we're going to go into a bit of a rundown of what we discussed 
today. So do you want to kick it off, Inez? Absolutely. We were first joined by Shannon Kilmartin Lynch, who is a Vantageless Indigenous Pre-Doctor Research Fellow, and they spoke about how they developed a method to use disposable PPE to make concrete stronger. And, oh, and after that, we spoke with Melissa Fisher, who's an anti-poverty advocate on income support payments and, like myself, is a member of the Anti-Poverty Centre, who joined us to discuss the Albanese government's inaction on poverty and what needs to change to improve the lives of people on social security in Australia. And then we heard Marissa interview Kieran Pender, a senior lawyer at the Human Rights Law Centre, who gives listeners a breakdown of the anti-poverty bill that passed Tasmania's Upper House on the 25th of August this year. He highlighted the nationwide trend following the passing of a similar bill in Victoria and New South Wales in recent months that erodes democracy through attacks on protest rights. And then we uh, had a replay of a compilation of Vox Pops from International Overdose Awareness Day yesterday on the steps of Parliament House of Victoria, as well as sounds and speeches from a side demonstration at the Australian Federal Police Headquarters. And finally, we heard from Zara Page about her current research exploring the fairness of cognitive assessments for culturally and linguistically diverse Australians. And... uh, Just a heads up for listeners of 3CR, if you're listening now, continuing in on the conversations that were held at the recent Dwelling Justice Forum last Friday at RMIT, you can tune into 3CR today at midday to hear the story of the Renters and Housing Union, or RAHU, a union formed in the fire of the 2020 rent strike, to learn how to get involved in the Rent is Too High campaign as well as other events for Dwelling Justice. And this features analysis and stories from the Dwelling Justice Forum as told by academic activist Libby Porter. And this is hosted by 3CR producer Kelly Whitworth, who produced the recent excellent show Homeless in Hotels, with Rahu members Zachary and Tim. And this is essential listening for anyone interested in Dwelling Justice, in uh, activism in Narm and beyond. And it's going to be on again, as I said, Thursday, today, September the 1st, from 12 to 1 p.m., 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or 3CR.org.au forward slash streaming. So uh, hopefully people will be able to tune into that. You'll probably be able to catch it back again as a podcast. And, um, yeah, just shout out to the excellent folks that curated the Dwelling Justice Forum. It seems like some excellent conversations came out of that. Um, there were some brilliant panels, and uh, 3CR will be replaying audio from that over the coming weeks. So really look forward to bringing that to you, and hopefully you'll catch some of it on Thursday morning breakfast so that's all we've got time for today on 3cr and um we look forward to catching you all next week see ya bye